several things. You think of uh, the donkey, perhaps, and Christ coming in to the town, to Jerusalem on the donkey. Perhaps you think of the palm fronds. How many times have you been in a church on a Sunday morning and the youth are there with their palm, the children of the church with their palm fronds waving them? Finally, you might think of the song that they oftentimes will sing, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. This is what we oftentimes, year after year, will remember on Palm Sunday. But what is it all about? What is being declared? Jesus is entering Jerusalem and receives the praise of a king. He was to be praised. He was king, but he was not a king that comes conquering. And in fact, none of the way, ways that Jesus came were how the people of, or let's at least say the, the leaders of Israel, wanted They didn't want a Messiah on a donkey. They wanted a Messiah on a war horse. They wanted a Messiah who would come out and kick out the Roman occupiers. They didn't want this sort of king. And so they even declared, hey, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Stop them from crying out. The interesting thing is, as we come in, on Palm Sunday, and we started Palm Sunday actually several weeks ago as we read through the story of um, Jesus. Uh, Sunday to Sunday, we've been going through the whole story. That's why this morning you didn't actually get the Palm Sunday reading. You got the crucifixion reading. Next weekend, you're going to get the resurrection reading, of course, because it's Easter. But one of the things you'll notice is, through that reading is that as Jesus comes in, He doesn't ascend the Davidic throne. He doesn't go and take his place as king publicly. And in fact, Jesus, in his coming into Jerusalem and spending that week leading up to Passover and then ultimately to his death and resurrection, is showing something very distinctive about his kingship. That he came as a king who would also be a priest who would also be a sacrifice that he would come and make sacrifice of his own flesh to satisfy the demands of the law. He would offer up his own body. Jesus comes and fills a role that was long set before him, set out for him. It's, it's something we see the shadows of all the way back into the book of Genesis When Abraham has his encounter with Melchizedek, it's something that we see the shadows of here in Psalm 110. That we see the fulfillment of in the New Testament. As we come to this text this morning, we need to remember the context here. Right now we're in the Old Testament. We're in the time of kings. And there was no one greater in the land of Israel during the time of kings than the king. He was the ultimate authority. And the greatest of these kings, of all the kings, was King David. 
And yet our psalm begins by saying, the Lord. And we get two different lords here, but if you look in many of your English texts, you'll notice here, the lords look a little different. And that's supposed to be show us something. You have often might, might have heard me said this, say this. The first Lord, the Lord, is in all capitals. Whenever you see Lord like that in all capitals in the Old Testament, it's always talking about Yahweh there. It, it could almost say, I am who I am. Yahweh says to my Lord. Now, if David is writing here, David is my right he is the my he's not the lord here but but neither lord in psalm 110 verse 1 are king david the greatest man in the land we're talking about someone here who is higher than king david someone who will see uniquely holds in himself the two offices of priest and king the structure of our, our psalm shakes down to this you have one who is your king you have one who is your priest, and you have one who is your priest king. You have one who is your king, you have one who is your priest, and you have one who is your priest king. This will be our three points this morning. The Lord who is king, the Lord who is priest, the Lord who is priest king. Let's begin by looking at the Lord who is king. Who is this person then who Yahweh says to to David, I will make him sit at my right hand. And, and notice here, the just in and of itself, the position of sitting. This Lord is going to sit at God's right hand. And then what is God going to do? God is going to make his enemies a footstool. The God of the universe, the God of all creation is going to do the work while this Lord takes a place of seating. In fact, we, we kind of see this unfold in 5, 6, and 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. This is the authority and the power with which this king reigns. He is exalted above all else. He sits at the very right hand of God. Well, who is this person? Who is this person that the Lord says to my Lord, I will make you to sit at my right hand? We could obviously at this point jump to Hebrews and find our answer, but I, I want to, before we even do that, look at Matthew 22. In Matthew 22, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And they've been questioning Jesus, and they've been questioning Jesus, and he finally kind of has enough with them. And this is what he says. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. 
If then David calls him Lord, how is he son? And no one was able to answer a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus, after being questioned and questioned, kind of puts an end to all questions. Because in essence, he asked them a question that either they didn't want to answer because they didn't like the implications of it, or they simply didn't know. They acknowledged something about Jesus in this moment, that Jesus was far beyond their understanding. Because he says to them, how can the, the Messiah... Be son of David if David calls him Lord. How could could the Messiah be David's son, but also be David's Lord? And there is a proper answer to this question. But to properly answer this question, it means you have to acknowledge something about Messiah. About who he is, about his authority. It means accepting the incarnation as true. That this person is in the form of Jesus. The Pharisees stopped asking questions of Jesus. The Jewish leaders, I should say, stopped asking questions of Jesus because they didn't like the answer. They didn't like the answer and so they walked away and never asked another question. So the question for us is, how will we respond to such a question? How do we respond to such a king? How should we respond to this exalted Jesus Christ, this one who sits enthroned as king above all the earth? The psalmist gives us an answer for this. Verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. The proper response to God, to to Christ, to Jesus Christ as king, is to offer ourselves as a free offering to him. We cannot continue to walk in the self-centered patterns of life. We cannot serve Jesus Christ however we want to because holiness is not self-centeredness they don't equate to the same thing we are to live as those who are servants of this lord who acknowledge that this lord is above all else who has been made to sit at the right hand of god He rules in the midst of all. Verse 3 ends with this very poetic imagery of the servants of Christ. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. It's, It's this wonderful, beautiful picture here. When you talk about the womb of the morning, and it, it, it really is meant to invoke this image of out of the darkness breaks light, right? You ever been on a field on the morning when the sun comes through and hits the dew? What does it do to the dew? Dew to the dew. As the sun hits those little droplets of water, 
and it makes it shine, doesn't it? There's, there's on occasion, it always seems like it's around September, October, and I'll be driving up to the church in the morning, and there's these chain link fences along this road, and overnight, spiders, tons of spiders have all made these little chain links, and you'll see, you can see each and every one of those because the dew cling to the string. It's getting hit by the light and it shines forth. And he says, the people of God, this is how you're to be. The other thing that that is peculiar about uh, these fields when you see the dew is try to count the dew. The people of God are to be reflecting the glory of this Lord. We are to shine forth we who are the possession of this king, the dew of your youth will be yours. We are to make ourselves an offering to our king. We are to present ourselves in holiness before him. We need to be reminded. That this one is our king. And he has the right to claim rulership in our lives. What does that mean for us? That means that we give our allegiance to none other. That means that we don't look to earthly rulers. We don't look to political parties, be they Democrat or Republican. Or independent or whatever else they may be. All leaders of this earth, they seek personal gain in some way, but we are to submit to this king who has been made to sit at the right hand, who has true power, who has truth authority. And we are to submit to his authority to be completely devoted to Christ in our faith and in our work. We come in faith and obedience to all that he has instructed us because he is king. And that is his right. We give him praise as king. We should come rightly singing Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. And by the way, we should do it more than once a year. We should give him praise daily as our Lord and King. And you might be tempted at that point to go, Daniel, that sounds a lot like, that sounds very legalistic. You're telling me I have to go obey and go do because he's king and if he's king, I serve. And, And you go, well, if you leave it there, it does sound a little bit legalistic, doesn't it? But the psalm doesn't leave it there because he's not just king. He's not just king. This glorious one is also your priest. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You are not just king, you are also priest. Christ is presented in this psalm as something more than just a king. He is established as king, as supreme judge, as the supreme mediator of men. Could could there be a greater 
promise here than we see in verse 4. The Lord has sworn. Now, again, note here, who is the Lord there? Capital L-O-R-D, right? Yahweh has sworn. Yahweh has made promise. Yahweh has guaranteed with... If there, if there ever was going to be a guarantee that was the complete stamp of approval that would never go away, this is it. The Lord has sworn. Him whose word has never failed and will never fail, he has sworn that Messiah will be priest forever. And again, we could... To unpack this, we just for a moment, and I'm going to do this very quickly, we have to consider who Melchizedek is. We're not going to go, we've, we've not long ago looked at this. Melchizedek, though, who was this king of Salem over, and ruled in the city of peace. Who came to Abraham and Abraham sat, gave sacrifice. Paid him the tithe. He was someone unique. He was someone who showed us how this messianic priesthood would function. Jesus doesn't come as a priest according to Levi. Jesus comes as a priest according to Melchizedek. Because the Levitical priesthood couldn't make anything perfect. A better priesthood was needed. And so God comes and swears, this one, this Jesus, this Messiah will be a priest, but his priesthood will be never ending. And it will not be like that of the Old Testament system, which failed again and again and again and was shown through its daily need of sacrifice. His will be different. It will be unending. So what does this mean for us as believers? As the son of God, as the king, as the perfect Messiah, he has made perfect sacrifice once for all. Why does Jesus come on a donkey? Why does Jesus come um, in, in, in a way that the people didn't want? Because he was coming to be this priest, to come and make sacrifice for God's people in a final way. He comes as the perfect priest so that now nothing can remove redeemed sinners from the hands of God. That's the security that verse 4 gives us. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. It's this double emphasis. If the Lord has sworn, how can he change his mind? But it gives us security. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, which we could also take to say that you have been given a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, who would come different, who would have not only the ability uh, to give sacrifice, but also to be your ruler, who is perfect to fill both, both of these offices. He is not only king, but he is priest. In his sacrifice, he has made intercession that now we can be reconciled to God in heaven. So that all that was required in the temple, all that was required for the forgiveness of sins has been made perfect in Christ. 
So now we can approach the throne of grace. We can boldly come into the throne room of God as sons and daughters of the God most high. This is what we remember this Easter this Easter season. And this next week, we're going to come and you're going to do many things. We'll have a good Friday service. We've been doing that for years now, and you're going to do that. And perhaps, you know, maybe you've already been buying that Easter outfit that you're going to wear on Easter Sunday. I know we've been doing that for our kids, and it's something we do once a year. And you're getting Easter baskets ready and Easter egg hunts. And as my wife says, Easter has the best candy of all the seasons. She's convinced Easter has the best candy. Which, I mean, it should, right? Jesus' resurrection, best candy. It's a little joke. But we don't come and do these things for themselves. We don't even come and do Easter, celebrate Easter, because we're commanded to celebrate Easter. Nowhere in the Bible is going to say, each time this year you need to do this. It doesn't. If someone says, hey, you shouldn't celebrate Easter, it doesn't say, you go, well, yeah, you're right. It doesn't say anywhere in the Bible we should celebrate. It doesn't say anywhere in the Bible we should celebrate Christmas. If anything, you could argue that we need to be celebrating Christmas and Easter every day. So it doesn't mean it's bad either. We remember Christ. We remember our king. We remember our perfect priest who has come and made sacrifice for us because Christ, this is, and this is the final point, and you go, well, this Daniel, this really is just a redundant of the first two points here. I would say, yeah, you're right in a way. But it's an important redundancy that he's not just king and he's not just priest, but he is priest king. In one person, in an unprecedented way that only happened one other time in the history of the world, Christ brings these two offices together, priest and king. And in joining these two offices, what, is he, what, is he, what does he do? Not that just he's able, but as priest and as king, he sits at the right hand of God the Father. He has power and authority. I want you to think about what this image here is evoking. When you talk about where God sat, and you think about the Old Testament imagery, um, the mercy seat was located on the Ark of the Covenant. Between the cherubim, you had the mercy seat. And when God's presence dwelt, that was his, his seat. And then... When the blood of the, of the Passover was brought in, the, the, or the Day of Atonement, the blood that was brought in for the sacrifices, where was it sprinkled? On the Ark of the Covenant. On the mercy seat. This is where Christ sits. At the right hand of God. This is representative of Christ taking on the judgment of God for his people's sins. He has taken our punishment and he abides in God's presence so that we can be absolutely confident in the continual blessings of Jesus that come down from his hand. It's the wonderful truth of this, uh, this psalm 
that he has made reconciliation between me and you and God and that he sits there even now pouring that blessing down upon us. And while we may be at times chastened and punished for our own good, he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. His priesthood, his kingship are eternal. We see the eternality of his kingship here. He says, you're going to sit there and I'm going to execute judgment on the people. Your enemies will be your footstool. But not only that, you will be priest forever. There is a double, a, a dual eternal thing going on here. He's priest and king. He has power and authority. So now that we can come to him with confidence and joy to this throne room of grace, no matter how much your conscience may condemn you, no matter how much sin may eat and gnaw at you, you can come with confidence before Jesus Christ if you are in him. Because there is none greater. There is no king or queen. There is no president or, I don't know, dictator, ruler, authority, prime minister. None can compare with this one. He is Jesus. He is Christ. He is Lord. He is king. He is priest forever. Christ is perfect for our needs. He is able to give us exactly what we need. Unlike Israel of the Old Testament, we don't have to look both to the high priest and to the king. We don't have to look to to secular authority or, sorry, spiritual authority. And then look to the king who would be the head of the country. We look to Christ who is both, both spiritual and physical ruler of his people. We look to him who there is none greater than. There is none who has ever had the same authority. None who have had the same ability to save. We are to come to the throne of grace and worship the king of kings. You have a Lord who is your king. Yes, meekly he came. Yes, humbly. Not in the way that one might expect. But he came bringing us exactly what we needed. We have a Lord who is priest, who has made perfect sacrifice on our behalf. That's what we see here. The perfect sacrifice of our priest who has satisfied completely for us the demands of a just and holy God who gives us access to the throne room of grace. And you have a God, you have a Savior who is not just king, who is not but just priest, but you have a Savior who is a priest king 
who unites these offices perfectly in every way, who has taken his proper place by the right hand of God the Father in heaven. I hope in years to come, as you come up the Sunday before Easter and you think of, oh, it's Palm Sunday again. Don't look to the palm fronds. Don't look to the donkey. Look to the one whom it was all there for. Look to the king who came as a sacrifice for your sins. Look to your Savior, Jesus Christ, who not only says, live holy before me, but enables you through his own shed blood to live holy before him. Look to the one who has power and authority over all others, over all else. Look to him as your constant source of hope and of joy. Give him the praise and the honor and the worship that is due his name. Let's pray. O Father in heaven, Lord, even as we come now and prepare for this table, O Lord, would we see Jesus? Would we see this one who is king and priest who is perfect, who has made reconciliation, who through the, his shed blood on the cross, through the power that we see on display there, has brought us access. And, oh, Lord, would this not be a source of misery for us, but would it be a source of joy and gladness and appreciation for all that he has done. We ask and pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Let's stand.